1: You know, we all have so many data points um, in uh, our past. Um, and, you know, I, I look at everything through the lens of productivity, but, uh, you know, th- this is what I so often find in writing about productivity is, you know, people want to focus more and people want to. Have more energy and people want to be more motivated by their work. But, and so they try to look forward into the future to find uh, ways to become more productive and more focused and more passionate about what they do instead of looking behind and noticing, wait, every time I've been fired up about my work, I was, uh, you know, doing a podcast interview. Maybe I should start a podcast. Um, every time I've been pr- productive, I've been taming distractions or I've been on a deadline. Maybe I should find more deadlines or seek out ways to uh, make my work a bit more threatening. You know, Every time I've uh, had a ton of energy to bring to my work, I've uh, been uh, taking a lot of breaks at work. I've been uh, having a consistent exercise regimen or a meditation regimen. Maybe I should pick that back up. So, yeah, like you said, we have all these data points, but we just need to look back for them. It seems weird to kind of look into the past. But that that's how we've lived our lives up to this point. And if we want to find a direction and a trajectory that's different from where we are, that's more productive, that's more focused, that's more uh, meaningful, I think that's a great place to start. <music>
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
0: Yeah, you're one of the rare few guests that we've had back uh, more than twice uh, for good reason. I've been a big fan of your work. uh, Loved your latest book, Hyper Focus, which we're going to talk about in detail. But before we get into all of that. Uh, I want to start by asking you: What did your parents do for a living, and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Both my parents are psychologists, and uh, and I so so I think this is why I try to dissect my own mind so much, <laughs> as well as the minds of other people, and and how we work, and how we think, and the biases we have. Um, and, and they're also they're also quite risk averse, uh, which you know, doing what I do for a living, it's it's quite risky to to be out on your own. Uh, hopefully doing things for an audience of one, which turns into an audience of many. Um, and, and so, you know, that kind of blends into what I do. So, I do what I do, despite the fact that I'm risk averse. But I think because <laughs> of the fact that my parents are weirdos and are into psychology. Yeah,
0: <laughs> So I, I, anytime I talk to somebody who has been exposed to a, a wide array of sort of personal development or uh, information about how to manage their psychology, I'm yeah. always of the impression that, oh, you must have been raised with this like perfect subconscious programming and turned out totally normal, which I'm guessing you're going to dispel that myth from me. but uh what are the misperceptions that we might have about the fact that you had parents who are psychologists that would make us
1: think that you're, you've been raised perfectly? Yeah. I think that they wanted to continue working when they came home. Just just like anybody else, just like a, if somebody's a, a massage therapist, for an example, who comes home exhausted, they might not give their family uh, therapeutic massages every night. I, I think a similar thing is true. Um, and my, my fiance, whenever she's met my parents, which has been uh, quite often, she's always afraid that they're going to dissect her and, and read her like a book. And the truth is that they... Probably could, but at the same time, they don't really care to because it's just more work. Uh, yeah. And so I think, uh, I think that's a misconception that, you know, everybody kind of needs a break and your family is so often your break. You know, it's where you recharge. It's, it's where you get more energy from. And so I think yeah, there's yeah. probably a few things that's played in in the background about this, but you know, I, I think it's part of, uh, it's part of my story, but not a big part of my story, I think.
0: Yeah. What
1: uh, lessons did they pass on uh, about managing your own psychology?
0: Uh, What are the narratives that you are raised with around mental health? The reason that I ask this is because I know in the Indian culture, the sort of default narrative around anything mental health is, oh, well, therapy is for crazy people. We don't do that. Uh, And I believed that for a very long time until I found myself in a therapist office at 37. And my only question Mm -hmm. was, what the hell took me so long to get here?
1: Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the narratives around mental health, I think they were just, it was, this is the funny, and this, I love these questions because they're, they're making me think immediately off the bat as opposed to just reverting to the same you know, kind of points about the book. But I think the narrative around mental health was an interesting one because the families that, uh, that, that we have, the, both my parents' sides, um, they were the ones who came to my parents for help. And so very much, um, it, you know, maybe the, the family outside of my parents wasn't so open about mental health, but they were quite open about mental health. I've seen uh, psychologists, not, not very many good ones who have actually helped me di- dissect my mind more than say a meditation practice could. But it's uh, I think that, that inclination towards exploration has been uh, in the background. And I think the openness is there, but I just haven't really labeled as, as such. I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally it makes sense. Uh, do they pass on any particular
0: lessons about managing self esteem, uh dealing with things like depression or failure or setback uh that you think have, have had an impact on on who you've
1: become? Hmm. I don't think so. And and that's it, it might sound like an odd answer, but it's just something we didn't talk about. Yeah. Wow. I, I think, uh, you, you know, they were very much about promoting how we, we explored our own minds, but didn't necessarily prod us. And, and I, I think this is a, a hesitation that they had in a way um, where they didn't want to get us to be some way. They didn't you know, get us to to go to a particular church. They didn't get us to try to do a particular profession. They really just say, okay, you know, find out who you are. And so, the work was on me. And so, there, there was, you know, kind of little guidance. But I think that kind of uh, scrappy mental nature kind of made for that, the curious nature that is hopefully behind most of the things that I do today. And so, yeah, it was kind of that, that curiosity that's embedded uh, within me, maybe the the tendency toward connecting different disparate, uh, different dis- disparate pieces of information uh, might be in me too. But yeah, this is a this is a fun. We'll we'll get to that. And wow. I know because I know you talked about that in the
0: book. <laughs> you know, the other part of this that I wonder uh, mainly because I'm working uh, on an outline for a new book about the impact that our social programming has on us. Uh, you mentioned that they were risk-averse. And yeah. despite the fact that they were risk-averse, you have developed a capacity for risk. I guess the question is then, how does somebody uh, who has been raised with social programming that has taught them to be risk-averse develop a capacity for risk despite that programming?
1: I I, I think that you find what you're so curious and passionate about that you will do that thing despite all the risk. Um, and so, I, I think when you... Know that you're so into something that you absolutely have to do it despite the risk that exists. That's a sign that you've found something that you're truly passionate about. And, you know, some people have weird curiosities. I I would include myself in that mix with productivity. Um, And so, you know, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but there was a point when I graduated university and I received a few job offers where I had the choice of going the traditional route. But I thought, okay, I'm so much of a nerd about productivity. Let's experiment with this. Let's explore this for a year. So, I declined the jobs I uh, uh, to start what became the Productivity Project. And I, I think, you know, doing that despite the risk. So, if you're risk averse, I just think you need to find that thing that you can't stop thinking about, that you can't stop uh, just perseverating on as you do other things. You know, look at how you spend your free time, what you consume, what you connect, who you talk to uh, people about. Um, uh, You know, that's, I think, a sign that you're truly into something. that You know, doing, like you say, doing the work for the work's sake because you can't get it off of your mind and you can't think about doing anything else.
0: So, you chose not to accept a job right after college. So, I wonder, what would you say to people who might be listening who are either in college right now or about to finish college, uh, about what you've just said. Is this is this something that you think everybody should do, or does it is, is it something that people should consider experimenting no, with? I just wondered what your yeah. advice would
1: be. For it's definitely not something most people should do. <laughs> what, what what I would recommend, and, and I remember I was a recruiter at a big technology company for a while through university. And one of the things that we looked for when we were hiring people, in fact the main thing that we looked for was how people spent their spare time. And so, you know, these were co-op students who were in university. And the ones that we hired more often than not, um, A, they were in the co-op program. So, they actually had some real experience. But B, they had signals that they were curious about what they were studying beyond just university. Um, And so, I would look... To that point, as a starting point, how do you spend your free time? Um, if you, it, it's the classic question. If you, if Shrini, you know, he decided to give you all the royalties for, from all his books, and I decided to as well. You win this grand <laughs> contest, and uh, you, you know, you, you you don't have to worry about money anymore. You have a constant amount rolling in. How do you spend your time? when you have that total flexibility, you know, some random guy leaves you in his will for a hundred million dollars. How do you spend every day of your life? And chances are you would spend it how you spend a lot of your free time already. Um, you know, whether it's reading books about productivity, whether it's painting, whether it's illustrating, whatever your art happens to be. Um, I, I would look at that place as a place to start. And so I, I would find ways. And this is, <laughs> I'm going way back to, to when I graduated. This is kind of fun. Um, you know, find ways and places where what you're studying intersects with what you're passionate about. If, if they overlap and the Venn diagram is just a circle, then I, I think you continue for uh, to find a career uh, in that. But, but you know the thing that I've realized in, in talking to people and uh, exploring these ideas is wherever you work, assuming it's a job you'll get a paycheck. Um, you know, And so if it's for yourself, you know, you'll probably struggle to get by. But chances are you'll find a way because you give yourself no choice but to find a way. Um, so I, I would look at where your skills and your passions overlap um, and use that as... Uh, th- this is... Uh, it might be common sense advice. But at the time that I was graduating, I thought, okay, I have this degree and I have these job offers. But there's little overlap between these offers and what I'm actually curious and passionate about. So I found the overlap. It was productivity because I have a business degree. I couldn't find a job in which I could experiment and explore that. So I thought, I said, F it, you know, let's decline these jobs and experiment with productivity for a year, which then turned into a career and which is now a calling. And now I get to write books and do talks uh, around the world about this idea. So it can work out this way. And if you give yourself no choice, but to make it work out that way, I think your odds are even better. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up the passion idea, and I think the the thing that's interesting was that you preceded it by saying that there are a lot of experiments and exploration, which I, I think often people have this idea that they're they have some predetermined passion, which is ridiculous because you have no data points to make that kind of a decision about what you're passionate about. And I think that that you know, when you really do find something engaging, that's when a passion starts to emerge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, we all have so many data points um, in uh, our past. Um, and, you know, I, I look at everything through the lens of productivity. But, uh, you know, th- this is what I so often find in writing about productivity is, you know, people want to focus more and people want to have more energy and people want to be more motivated by their work. But, and so they try to look forward into the future to find uh, ways to become more productive and more focused and more passionate about what they do instead of looking behind and noticing, wait, every time I've been fired up about my work, I was, uh, you know, doing a podcast interview. Maybe I should start a podcast. Um, every time I've been pr- productive. I've been taming distractions or I've been on a deadline. Maybe I should find more deadlines or seek out ways to uh, make my work a bit more threatening. You know, every time I've uh, had a ton of energy to bring to my work, I've uh, been uh, taking a lot of breaks at work. I've been uh, having a consistent exercise regimen or a meditation regimen. Maybe I should pick that back up. So, yeah, like you said, we have all these data points, but we just need to look back for them. It seems weird to kind of look into the past, but that that's how we've lived our lives up to this point. And if we want to find a direction and a trajectory that's different from where we are, that's more productive, that's more focused, that's more uh, meaningful, I think that's a great place to start. Yeah.
0: Well, we've talked to you before about how you ended up sort of uh, landing where you're at. And you kind of alluded to some of it in in this conversation as well. Was there anything early on in your life that planted your seed for this interest of all things in productivity? Because for somebody as young as you were to decide, you know what? This is what I'm passionate about. A very strange passion.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, I I think it was feeling that the absence of things to do in my mind. And uh, I first got this feeling of absence. It's it's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but it really makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you too. Um, The the first place I got it was reading Getting Things Done by David Allen, which the whole system is about getting the things you have to do into an external list or some sort of system so that you have more attention with which to focus throughout the day. Uh, and, And so, that was Kind of the first feeling that I had, you know, outside of a vacation, where I was actively doing a lot of work and had a lot of projects on my plate. Mind you, these aren't very important projects. These were, <laughs> these were like, these were like uh, book reports in high school way back when. But I, I felt that feeling of okay, I have so much to do, but I know that when I work on something, that everything's somewhere, that I can just totally focus and become immersed in what I'm doing. And so, maybe uh, maybe there's something to this whole productivity thing. And so, I think so much of productivity, you know, we talk about doing more and uh, uh, accomplishing more. But I-, I think there's that deeper... Feeling when it comes to product, that feeling like we only get a bit of that feeling sometimes, and it's often when we do something and it's not on our to-do list, and we cross that off, and it feels amazing. But I, I, th- I think we can feel that way all the time. Like, um, like, like uh, whatever we're doing, that's where we need to be. And I think that's kind of the power of working with intention behind what we do uh where there's that in the moment confidence that where we are is where we need to be um and i've I've gotten this feeling um totally uh where you know I had that total confidence uh, once more and it was on the publicity tour for the the last book of all places <laughs> um you know kind of a a situation that that I didn't expect to find myself in but somehow managed to get there where, you know, we were doing uh, 10 interviews in a day back to back to back to back. But there was somebody all the time to get me water or uh, get me food. And, you know, just as I felt hunger beginning to uh, encroach on my mental space, there was a meal in front of me. And I knew there there was somebody telling, okay, you have to go here now and we're going to drive you here now. And wherever I was, I knew that that was exactly where I needed to be. And, uh, th- I think there's that confidence embedded within intention where, uh, we feel that sense of purpose in the moment. And so uh, I think, uh, you know, that feeling is worth chasing. Yeah. So what prompted, uh,
0: this idea of hyper-focus? I mean, obviously we know that our issues with S- distraction and attention are, are at an all time high. We've had Cal Newport here to talk about deep work. So yeah, what really is it that... Planted your uh, what planted the seed for your interest in this subject in particular.
1: Honestly, and this is it's tough to admit sometimes, but it's noticing how distracted that I was uh, after publishing the first book, and uh, you know you have to you have to know and, and that that a lot of the advice that I gave in the first book centered around focusing deeper and resisting distractions and managing our attention. But yet, once that book was shipped, I found myself in a state of uh, of distraction where, you know, I, I couldn't focus. I, I was surrounded by novel notifications and it was because I, I wasn't on a deadline of some sort. And that led me to think, okay, if I'm in this situation as somebody who makes his living uh, studying and speaking about and writing about productivity. Maybe other people who aren't as into productivity um, are a facing this puzzle, but you know, b that I wasn't seeing the full picture of just how distracted we are and how we can actually uh, tame these distractions as opposed to falling victim to them. So, that was very much the impetus. Um, and uh, But it's worth admitting because uh, we're all human. Um, so, let's get into the concepts in this book. Uh,
0: let's start with this idea of attentional space. Can you mm-hmm. define it for us and talk about how we can make ours better?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, we only have so much attention to give to the world around us in the moment, and uh, I, I think most of us are aware that our attention is limited blah blah blah. we've heard this a lot of times before, but we don't really internalize just how limited things are um, and th- th- this was uh, th- this was something that surprised me. I was you know going through all the research that I could find on the topic, reading these uh, <laughs> these studies from front to back um, I don't know I think a lot of people say they read. St- Studies from front to back, but they don't actually do it. <laughs> but essentially, uh, they're, they're very dry. They're, they're very dry, some of these studies, but we can only hold, after we pay attention to something, we can only hold so much in our mind at one time. And a lot of the ideas uh, in the research are, are surrounding attention, they're kind of like difficult to connect with on some level. And I, I found this idea of our working memory capacity, how much information we can hold in our mind at one moment, coming up again and again and again and again, where this is the mental scratch pad that we use to hold information in our mind. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the equivalent of a computer's RAM, but for our brain. Um, and, and it's very limited, this working memory capacity. So, I, I use the term attentional space as a way of framing this idea. Um, and what we do when we focus on something is we welcome it into this attentional space. But, you know, like you were saying, it's quite limited. We can hold, we used to think we could hold around seven unique chunks of information in our uh, short-term memory at one time. But the the latest research shows that we can hold around three or four chunks of information. And the world is structured around this. Um, you know, it's structured around threes. We have sayings like good things come in threes, and the third time is the charm, and uh, uh, celebrities die in threes. Um, and, and we even, you know, we chunk things naturally into threes and fours. Um, a good example of this is phone numbers, which are usually, uh, you know, three numbers, and three numbers, and four numbers. We don't say, you know, my phone number is uh, 1000000000 784, 600. <laughs> <laughs> we say my phone number is one six one three eight nine. You know, and, and so this is how we're meant to think. And but the idea is that because we can only fit a few things in our mind at one time, we need to manage our attention more deliberately. We can't carry on two conversations at one time. We can't. Even do uh, two complex things at one time. At best, we can do a complex thing while doing something habitual, uh, like working out while listening to a podcast or doing our laundry while we listen to a podcast or an audiobook. And so, it's essential. And we can multitask with habits. We can use the attentional space to do that. Um, but when it comes to our most complex work, it requires uh, so much of our attention that we need to give our attention to the complex tasks that we have. Uh, more completely. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's this idea that uh, by managing this space, which is just what we're focusing on in the moment, we better manage our life and, and every aspect of it.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. So I think for most people hearing that, the first thought that comes to mind is the things digitally that compete for your attention. And after talking with Adam Ghazali, who's a neuroscientist whose work I'm sure you're familiar with, given the nature of what you do, uh, the thing that became very clear to me is the importance of your physical space uh, when it comes to attention management. So what, what did your own work show about this?
1: Yeah. One of the more illuminating things that, that I saw repeating and reverberating through the research, uh, maybe he was talking about this too, is the way that our attention is wired. Because uh, the key, I think, to under, uh, understanding distractions is that the reason we fall victim to them is that in the moment... What we see as a distraction is just a more attractive object of attention than what we truly want and ought to be doing. And the the way we see it as uh, more attractive, we we're our attention is wired to pay attention to anything that is one of three things by default. Uh, the first is anything that is pleasurable, we pay attention to. Uh, the second is anything that is threatening, we pay attention to. And the third is anything that is novel. We naturally pay attention to. There is even a novelty bias embedded within our brain's prefrontal cortex, where we naturally uh, get more of a release of dopamine, a pleasure chemical, whenever we focus on something uh, that our brain sees as shiny. Um, and this this aided us well in our evolutionary history because you know we, instead of hyper focusing on on building a fire for for our tribe, our village, we noticed the novel threat encroaching in on our environment. The saber-toothed tiger that was sneaking up, we paid attention to the threat, we dealt with the threat, and we evolved uh, to live another day and build another fire. Uh, And the same is true with the novel uh, pleasures in our environment where we evolved to notice berries hanging from a tree or potential mates with which also allowed us to re- reproduce and aided our chances at survival, but <laughs> these days uh, you know there aren 't many tigers roaming the streets there are some cougars, but not very many tigers. <laughs> I should have made that joke in the book um, but <laughs> but and the nearest threats are are few and far between, and the same brain mechanisms that allowed us to survive through today are what are hijacked from anything that we see as a distraction. And so, you know, you talk about the environment. we Anything in front of us that is more pleasurable or threatening or novel than the work that we truly want to be doing, we're going to have to resist it and expend mental energy in order to to realign our attention towards uh, what's more pleasurable and threatening and novel. Uh, lo- looking around me in, in, in the office right now, I have a bunch of plants. I have a meditation cushion. There's my turtle, Edward, uh, basking on Her rock. You can't tell the gender of a turtle when you get it. But and there's various things that I could pay attention to, but I 've designed the space so that nothing in it is more attractive in the moment than the work that I want to be doing and of course most of the distractions are digital so the phone is in another room uh, the iPad is in another room and uh, I don't have a distractions blocker enabled on my computer right now but it's because a conversation like this uh, consumes most of my attention in the first place and so you know there's kind of two environments I think that we need to manage there's the uh, there's the physical environment and the digital environment. And I would, uh, I, I would lend even more credence to the digital environments because they're where we spend so much of our time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's why I dedicated an entire chapter to
0: environments and audience of one, because I was just blown away by the impact both physical and digital environments have on all of your behavior. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we've talked endlessly, uh, on the show about how to deal with distractions. So I don't want to spend, you know, too much time on yeah. that idea. Let's get into this concept of hyper focus and yeah. what it means, how you define it and what are the, the, Benefits in terms of performance that result from hyperfocus.
1: Yeah, so I define hyperfocus. It it originates in ADHD literature where it's it's when uh, somebody with ADHD brings their full attention to something. I, I use that same term, uh, but to mean this, deli- but to, to mean that that complete focus, but coupled with deliberate attention. Uh, So, in other words, we choose what we focus on uh, before we focus on something. Um, and, uh, And I think that's a key to productivity where... The most productive people they don't work on this autopilot mode in response to the work that comes their way or lands in their email inbox uh, they're the ones who choose more often throughout the day uh, what they focus on and what they work on before they work on anything and, and so I think you know the, the one of the beautiful parts about writing this book is um, is that I found that our attention has these natural rhythms that we follow. You know, we're focused on something, our attention then gets distracted. Um, you know, people have done distractions to death. I, I think everything surrounding that, but distractions too, uh, is fascinating. Um, you know, so we get distracted by something internal or external to us. Uh, They're they're about 50-50 in terms of what derails us. uh, And then we bring our attention back. Uh, So, we can model some steps by which we can hyper-focus on our work and become more likely to do uh, what Cal refers to as deep work, uh, what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi refers to as this flow state, where we look up at the clock, we think... Uh, 20 minutes have gone by and it's three hours since we started working on something. (laughs) So, we're more likely to get into the state when we model some steps by which we can focus more deeply on our work after this natural rhythm that we follow to focus better. So, we start by focusing on something so we can choose what to focus on in the first place. Um, Then you eliminate as many external and internal distractions as you can. Uh, and the key is there as you can, because uh, like a hiccup, there there will be things that come up uh, at, over the course of working that you can't tame, like office visitors and things like that. Um, and then once you've uh, laid the groundwork, you've chosen something to do that's important, you've eliminated anything that is more pleasurable, threatening or novel in the moment than what you want to be doing, then you bring your attention to that intention and continually draw it back while you bring your mind back gently. And I think that's the key is that our mind wanders an awful lot against our will. It wanders around 47% of the day, uh, but we only notice that our mind has wandered five times every hour. And so in other words, we can fall down a rabbit hole of distraction, uh, or we can get into this state of mind wandering without intention. Um, Quite often. And we can fall into it for quite a long time without noting, knowing that we're in it. And so, you know, that's kind of the final step is bring our attention back when we notice that it's veered off the course.
0: Yeah. So, I think that most people understand the, the general concept behind this. Uh, but the thing is that what, I, what I've learned, at least, is that the capacity for attention and to have it sustain over a long period of time is something that you have to practice building. Uh, I know for a fact that if you had asked me when I was 29 or 30 to sit down and to write for an hour, hour and a half at the beginning of the day... <laughs> That yeah. would have been a tall order, which is which is ironic considering how many more distractions that we have in the world today. I mean, as somebody who is ADD, I think for me, many of these things are, are necessities. They're not things that I, I do because I'm passionate about productivity like yourself. Yeah. For yeah. me, they're like, if I didn't do these things, I wouldn't get a damn thing done. But how do, how do people raise that capacity for, for managing attention? I know you talked a bit about meditation. What are the other ways that it can be
1: done? Mm-hmm. Well... The way to raise your capacity uh, to focus for longer is to lower how stimulated you are by default. And so, we we feel uh, this sort of restlessness and uh, boredom and anxiety whenever we transition downward from a state of high stimulation into a state of lower stimulation. Um, That's the definition um, that I use for boredom is adjusting down into a state of lower stimulation because once we're there, we uh, don't experience boredom anymore, but it's as we're doing the adjusting that we feel restless and uncomfortable. And so, I think this is something that is worth chipping away at over time. Where um, and, and a way to do this and, and uh, a helpful strategy that I love is to shrink how long you'll focus for uh, until you no longer feel that resistance. So, um, you know, at, at the start, if you're like me, you might not be able to focus on one thing for 10 minutes um, if you're not on a deadline. And so... You know, shrink how long you're going to work on something until you feel no resistance to it. So, you know, could I write for an hour today? Now the thought of it puts me off. Okay, what about 45 minutes? Uh, 30, uh, tw- 20, uh, 50? Yeah, I can do 15. And then you focus for 15 minutes. You find that resistance level. You tame distractions. And then over time, as you ritualize this idea, you block off uh, uh, periods in your calendar to get into this mode. Um, uh, over time, you lower that default level of stimulation the amount of dopamine coursing through your brain because of this uh, novelty bias that's embedded within us, and you become better able to think more deeply about your work. And this is, I think, something that that, uh, others miss, is that it's... We can't just tame distractions and then work productively every day. We need to, over time, chip away at this level of stimulation um, to think more deeply and focus on one thing for a longer period of time. And so th- that's that's what what I would suggest. And this is easier said than done, but <laughs> it, it comes from uh, its ways, especially for somebody with with ADHD. But over time, you uh, begin to notice the quality of your attention increase. Um, and uh, and then you, you notice uh, how much you accomplish increasing but also how meaningful your life is because um, and this is you know kind of a big takeaway for me from this project is that the state of it's more than just productivity you know we talk about oh we should resist distractions because they they derail us so often but if there's one thing that shines through the research it's that the state of our attention is what determines the state of of our lives. Uh, if we're distracted in every moment, those moment to moment experiences accumulate to create a life that is filled with distraction. We live a distracted life and we never feel like we have a sense of purpose. But if we choose more often than not what we focus on and make that thing productive and make that thing meaningful, whether it's a conversation with you on a podcast, whether it's a dinner with a loved one, whether it's reading a good book, um, and we bring our attention to that, Um, Then our moment by moment experiences become more productive and meaningful and then those accumulate and build up to create a productive and meaningful life. And I think this is, you know, we talk about distraction and stuff in the moment, but this is the power of managing your attention is uh, the state of your attention builds up to determine the state of your life. And so, it's just, it's so worth, you know, you could tell I get a bit fired up by this idea, but it's because I've noticed this in myself. I feel more meaning in what I do. I'm more fired up by what I do. And it's because of these ideas. (laughs) wow okay so one i'm stealing that uh phrase the state of your attention
0: determines the state of your life and writing it as a blog post i'll make sure i credit you and link to Hyperfocus. you don't
1: answer. even have to credit me that's it's fine yeah uh, you I, know, I just that, that, want this idea that, 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 to get out there man yeah
0: and I, and I agree because i actually wrote a piece on medium titled that attention is the currency of achievement and i ended it by saying all you have to do is look at this one fact mark zuckerberg has become a billionaire
1: by doing one thing capturing your attention hmm. yeah it's it's so true what what is more novel or pleasurable or threatening than a Facebook notification, which happens to be the same colors as as the the berries that we evolved to pay attention to maybe sex <laughs> maybe sex yeah it's funny you know talking about mind wandering yeah <laughs> I, I wrote a bit in the book about like what leads our mind to wander and uh and so the more immersed we become in what we're doing in the moment the the um the, the you know the happier we are, um, and the thing that leads our mind to wander the least happens to be sex. Um, I have the list here. Number five <laughs> is listening to music. Yeah. Uh, number four is playing in in one way or another. You know, a creative hobby. Uh, three is talking and investing in our relationships. Two is exercising, uh, and one is making love. And you could do all five at one time if you really. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so, I think
0: that actually really makes a, a perfect segue to getting into this concept of scatter focus. So, you said basically uh, when you know the section on scatter focus. I have this here in front of me. There's this quote that um, I'm pulling up. Give me just a sec here. Um, actually, you know what? I don't have it in front of me. But let's. Oh, here it is. Just as hyper focus is the most productive mode of the brain, scatter focus is the most creative. Scatter focus can derail our productivity when our original intent is to focus. But when we're coming up with a creative solution to a problem. Plan planning for our future or making a difficult decision, it's just as essential as hyperfocus. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah. So, distraction tends to fill the spare moment of our lives like water. Water is very much on my mind. It's a beautiful rainy day here in rainy Kingston, Ontario, Canada. It's, it's, it feels so relaxing. I, I have a tea here. I have some water. Um, and it's very relaxing to talk to you. It's, it's such like a rainy day to to spend indoors, but yeah, it, it's I don't even know where I was going. See, sometimes we distract ourselves even even when we're really good at at paying attention to things. But um, yeah, I, I think you know traffic flow is one of my favorite things to study, of all, uh, in addition to productivity. And if you look at how traffic flows down the highway, what allows cars to continue moving forward isn't how fast they're moving, paradoxically. It's how much space exists between the cars that allows them to continue moving forward. And I would argue that our attention is much the same way. Now, this when our mind wanders against our will, it's terrible for our productivity because we're not progressing toward our intentions. But when we set out time to deliberately let our mind wander and, you know, doing anything habitual gets you into this, taking um, a bit longer of a shower in the morning, uh, swimming laps in the pool. Um, <laughs> what other examples are related to water? Having your, your morning tea or your morning coffee. Um, <clears throat> This mode, this mind-wandering mode, allows us to do three things at one time. It allows us to rest. And so, we we expend mental energy whenever we have to regulate our attention in one way or another. This is why uh, distractions are so exhausting. So, some days we uh, spend the entire day because uh, we don't have a lot of work to do. We just kind of bounce around between distractions and we find that we're exhausted. And it's because we expend mental energy whenever we have to realign our attention to focus on something. And so we rest up when we're taking a shower, or swim laps or or go for a walk. Uh, but at the same time and this is a total, uh, you know, kind of ball from left field. Um, b- because a curveball, I think is is the word that people use. Because I found that I had little energy when I was focusing all the time. And I thought, okay, what the hell am I doing wrong? I'm choosing what to focus on. I'm taming these distractions because they're so costly. I'm bringing my mind back. But it's because I never rested that I became burnt out. And I found that I worked in a more reactive way. And the fascinating thing that doing this uh, led me to was where our mind wanders to when we let it rest and just just be and not focus on anything. Um, We think about the past a little bit when our mind is wandering, but we only think about the past around 12% of the time. Uh, The rest of the time, We're either thinking about the present and how to approach it more strategically, or we're thinking about the future. Uh, We think about when when our mind is wandering, we think about the present 28% of the time, and we think about the future 48% percent of the time and most of this time is spent on the immediate future we're thinking about what we're going to work on next we think about uh what we're going to do later on in the day and most of us only get this in the shower but uh, but it's worth getting this more often um and we think about our goals here's here's one stat that uh that kind of changed the way I I felt about this this mind-wandering mode. Because I thought, okay, it's good for resting, but I like focusing on things, especially when they're novel and pleasurable and stuff. But we think about our goals 14 times as much when our mind is wandering versus when it's paying attention to something. And so, in this way, it's by paying attention to things that we actually move our work and our life forward. But it's by Stepping back and allowing some space be between the cars that we um that we set intentions that we uh let our mind rest and when we come up with ideas because when we connect the past to the present to the future that is when we uh come up with our most brilliant uh, eureka insights because we remember uh some nugget of information that we heard on a podcast a few uh weeks ago and we connect that to a problem that we're facing at work and then we form that connection and and bam we come up with an idea that we wouldn't have arrived at otherwise focusing on something. And so, I, I think it's um, it, it's because we bounce between these three mental destinations, our past, our present, and our future. And we also think about the information we've accumulated and, and connected that this mode is so powerful and it's worth getting more of already. Damn. Uh wow
0: well i think that makes a really fitting end to a conversation that has been packed with a ton of insight which is what i've come to expect from you at this point after after two of these conversations so i want to fence conversation with my uh final question and that is what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable
1: hmm I, I'm gonna steal this answer from Seth Godin and I'm sure he gave <laughs> gave this answer when he was on the show. I, I haven't listened to that one yet. But um it it's that something is remarkable. Um not in the way that that it's great, but in the fact that people will want to remark on it and about it. And I think the best ideas have that quality. Um any book or uh show or anything that goes viral has that quality. Um I, I think what makes something unmistakable is that it's worth talking about and sharing and and uh, that's my answer. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for
0: taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and uh, the new book?
1: Yeah, the book is called Hyper Focus. It's available in bookstores everywhere, wherever books are sold. <laughs> um Yeah. My site is alifeofproductivity.com. And yeah, just thanks for listening. I hope hope there's some actionable nuggets. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,